0: Welcome back to Behind the Wings, a podcast produced by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in beautiful Denver, Colorado. We've got a lot to explore, stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, up-close looks at iconic aircraft, and on today's show, aviation during the Vietnam War. It's time to go Behind the Wings. All right, we've made it to episode 24. We're so glad to have you along for the ride. Now, listen, make sure you subscribe wherever you listen. And if you like the show, leave us a rating. It's the best way for new people to discover us, and we really do appreciate it. All right, we're excited to bring you a historic episode today. I'm your host, Rick Crandall, and with me as always is Wings Over the Rockies president and CEO, John Barry. All right, John, what do we have for folks today?
1: So we're going to talk a lot about an incredible personal journey that illuminates some larger themes of aviation in the Vietnam War, as well as leadership in our Air Force. Our story starts at the Air Force Academy through air combat in Vietnam and ends at, believe it or not, talking to a former Air Force Chief of Staff. We'll introduce our guest in a minute, but for the history buffs out there, this was the first Air Force Academy graduate to advance to Chief of Staff of our United States
0: Air Force. Any guesses? let them think about that one all right and you know they don't know they're sure going to find out today this episode will also take a closer look at aviation during the vietnam war and how new innovations and tactics developed from the conflict all right i don't want you guys all google searching it or anything so for the listeners that haven't guessed yet our guest today is none other than general ron fogelman Ron served in the Air Force for 34 years earning himself a very decorated career. He's one of many misty forward air controller pilots that saw combat during the Vietnam War and has some really incredible stories. So stick around, folks. As someone that has traveled the world and flown more than 60 different aircraft, we can't wait to hear about his insights and experiences. There is a lot to learn in this episode, folks. So buckle your seatbelts, because this time machine is going back to the 60s. Let's get started. General Ron Fogelman, welcome to the show, sir.
2: Well, thank you. I'm pleased to be part of the show and be able to support wings over the Rockies.
0: Thank you for that. I'm just going to start this off pretty simply, just with an introduction, if you will. Basically, we're going to get into a lot of the flying and a lot of your military career, but how did this all come about?
2: You know, I grew up in central Pennsylvania. I went to high school and I got in some trouble. but. In Juniata County, the county was too poor to have a DA or a a probation officer, so the DA served as the probation officer, and I used to have to go report to him every two weeks and, you know, tell him I was staying out of trouble. One day, he had a client in when I went, and I was sitting around his outer office. I saw this thing in the wall, and I went up and I started reading, and it, it was a citation for the Bronze Star. And he happened to come out as I was reading it, and he said to me, are you interested in the military? And I said, well, I'd never given it any thought. He said, there's this new place in Colorado. It's called the Air Force Academy. You ought to go get with the guidance counselor and take a look at this and see whether you might be interested. So I ended up applying. We get this letter that says you're accepted to the Academy. Then on the day that I was to go down to the Academy, we went over to where the bus was. and The old man put me on the bus and that was the first time I ever saw tears in his eyes. When I got out there, I went down, and I uh, was not a a student or anything. But in, in the end, I ended up graduating the top third of my class and selected pilot training, and off I went.
1: I've heard a lot of your stories over the years, but so I never heard that one in the beginning. Over the course of your life, out of all the different kinds of planes that you got to fly, then once you set your sights on being a pilot, you know which plane stood out for you that you remember the most?
2: That's an interesting question. I get it often, and I'll tell you, I, I led a blessed life, both in the Air Force and later. I have flown 60-plus types of airplanes, to include the Flanker and MiG 21 and MiG 29. I was operational in the F-100, the F-4, the F-15, the F-16, and the A-10. So when people ask this question, I kind of duck it by going back, you know, I'm proud, I'm very proud to have flown the one hundred, you know, as a strike guy and as a misty fast fact. But then, you know, I went to the F four, but I ended up with about five hundred hours in the F four and flew virtually all the models up to include the slat wing E's. And then I was one of the early Eagle guys. I went through F fifteen training and started in nineteen seventy six. I ended up flying that in Europe both at Bitburg and at Susterberg, and I was the international show pilot in the F-15 for a couple of years. At that point, I was looking at retiring, but the personnel system took care of me, and they moved me out of there, out to Davis Mountain, to the air division, where I was checked out in the A-10, and I ended up with 400 hours of A-10 time.
1: So let's backtrack a little bit and, uh, you know, talk a little bit about Vietnam because we're getting ready to celebrate the 50th year when the Vietnam War ended. Let's talk about, you know, you have flown more than 8,500 hours amassing 315 combat missions and logged over a 806 hours of combat time. Many of those came from flying the F-100, of course. So we have the F-100 at Wings of the Rockies here in our museum. And the F-100 was the first of the century series fighters, the first one to go, you know, supersonic and level flight. What was it like to
2: fly the F-100? The thing I loved about the F-100 was it was a man's airplane. You either flew it well or it killed you. You know, I mean, that was kind of the differentiation and thing. And uh, I loved flying the airplane, even though it was not optimized for what we were doing with it. It was the primary close air support airplane in Vietnam for troops on the ground. 100 was a great workhorse. With the exception of one day, it brought me home every mission.
0: Talking about airplanes, it's a good lead into to where I wanted to take you, if you would, for just a second, sir. During the course of this war, Vietnam War, aviation played such a pivotal role in the whole thing. You know, the, the Huey helicopters, the F-4. It was pretty complex airspace, so I'm hoping maybe you can help us introduce air combat during this conflict. We're going to get into some of the missions specifically in a bit here, but just overall, what role did aviation play in the Vietnam War?
2: First of all, aviation carried the war to the North, both Air Force, uh, Marine, and Naval aviation. And the North had pretty sophisticated air defenses. And that's why the combat rescue guys in the A-1s and the Jollies were so revered by the fighter pilots. These were the guys who flew into the mouth of the dragon to bring people out, if you will. Where in South Vietnam, about the biggest stuff you would come up against would be maybe a ZPU-14, which was a twin-barrel 50 cal. Whereas in the North, you had everything from ZPUs to 23mm, 37, which are very common. You had some higher but rare AAA, and then you had the SAMs, and you had the MiG threat, depending on where you were you know, as to what that threat was.
1: Chief, let's go deeper into your experience with the F-100 and flying as a FAC or forward air controller. You helped fulfill this duty known as the call sign MISTI FAC when flying the F-100 Super Saver. And can you tell us uh, more about what exactly a forward air controller does and any stories that stand out for you for these incredibly challenging and exciting flying missions?
2: So the only way you could get to fly into North Vietnam if you were 100 guys is if you volunteer to go to Misty. So I volunteered to go to Misty, went up to Cat. We only had 156 of us and out of that 38% got shot down. We were really good at rescuing one another. So the Mistys were responsible for interdicting those things in Route Pack 1, which was the southern part of North Vietnam, where they then went over into Laos and came down through Rice. And uh, the F-100 was sub-optimized for that, but we had two seaters, and the guy in the front was normally responsible for flying the airplane, Jenkins, and the guy in the back was responsible, we had maps and cameras and this sort of thing, for documenting what was going on. And we would find targets, we'd call the airborne command and control, request fighters, come in, strike a target. If somebody got shot down, we were normally the first on-scene commander. We would be the first people over to determine whether or not a beeper was up or this sort of thing. And at some point then when the rescue forces would come in, we would turn that over to the A-1s. But we would stay on station because once somebody was on the ground, normally they would try and set up a flak trap around them and you had to kill guns. Mystics were good at killing guns.
0: So the F-100s weren't the only participants during Vietnam, the F-4, Phantom II, some others also acting as forward air controller jets. How do you coordinate with other aircraft and how did they differ from the F-100s?
2: Well, first of all, I'd have to differentiate between forward air controllers and fast forward air controllers because the forward air controllers were absolutely essential to the air war both in the South and in parts of the North and in Laos because the the forward air controllers flying 01 bird dogs and OV-10s, and as things got more and more sophisticated, they kind of lived and worked with the Army day in and day out and had direct communications with the guys in the ground. They were responsible for a certain area, and, I mean, they, they really knew that area. So they were real heroes, the, the facts. And uh, when people discovered this infiltration route for supplies, they sent some slow-moving forward air controllers up into North Vietnam, And they just couldn't survive up there in the environment. It was so much more hostile in terms of guns and this sort of thing. So somebody came up with this idea that, well, maybe we ought to take a fast mover like the 100 and use it because it'll have a higher survivability rate. And so that was the birth in the summer of 1967 of the Misty Fast Facts. And eventually we had cross-pollinated the Fast Fact thing into F-4s. So there was a bunch of F-4 Fast Facts. There were Stormies. Laredos. In fact, I commanded the Laredos in F-4s when I went back on my second tour. While FACS certainly had an important
1: job during the Vietnam, my goodness, what an incredible, challenging mission. They weren't the only aerial strategy. For example, we had use of helicopter aviation, particularly for medical evacuation and troop transport. All these were significant innovations during the war. Can you share your perspective on the role of helicopter operations in Vietnam?
2: Well, first of all, you've got to remember that for the Army, Vietnam was a helicopter war. And they lost literally thousands of helicopters. And uh, the guys who flew them were exemplary people. But the helicopters were used for logistics, for gunships. And initially, the only gunships they had were Hueys that had side-mounted, and they didn't have anything forward-faring. And so as the war went on, the Army and Bell developed the first true gunship which was the Cobra. And the Cobra, you know, the gunner sat in the front, the pilot sat in the back. It was a thin fuselage, had forward-firing guns, could fire rockets and all this kind of stuff. The other kind of helicopter that we had is the Cayman Huskies, which were primarily for crash recovery, but were not really designed to rescue air crews that got shot down, but they were used for that when they could. You had the Jolly Green Giants who were optimized for rescue, and they, we had some of those there and some in Diné. Those were the helicopters. The way the helicopter war was operated is the Army actually had a two-star who was in charge of all helicopter operations. So it was the first helicopter war in a sense. And most of the Army helicopter guys were young, 18 to 21-year-old. They were really something.
0: You yourself have had experience with helicopter aviation during Vietnam as well, most notably when you were rescued by an AH-1 Cobra in 1968 after your F-100 was shot down. Tell us what happened that day. Give a little bit of that experience, first off being shot down, and what was going through your head?
2: On the particular day when I got shot down, I was really deep in bad guy country down in Four Corps, very close to Gulf of Thailand. There may have been one or two people who survived who were shot down down there. But if you didn't get rescued, you just weren't coming back. In my case, when I got shot, <laughs> I had been on the ground coming up on a couple of hours. They were trying to get one of these caymans to hop at different bases to come get me. And uh, finally, the, the fact said, hey, uh, we have a couple of Army gunships that are willing to come in and try and pick you up. But you're going to have to ride on the outside, and then about 10 minutes later, two of the skinniest helicopters I ever saw, whop, wop, wop come in, and they land. Eventually, I come up out of the water and away from the canal bank. I went out, and I sat down on the skid. The gunner popped his canopy and shook his head no and pointed to these two buttons. So I got up, pushed those, and punk. this gun bay door fell down. It was about that wide, it was, you know, maybe 16 inches wide. Had a cable on each of them. So I stuck my leg through one, my arm through the other, and they flew me. 20 miles to the nearest Special Forces camp. So I had one of those wing commanders who was kind of a suck-up. So he sends off a message to this Army two-star who runs all the helicopters. You know, Joe. So I want to thank you and your men who rescued my guy and da-da-da and all this. Well, it turns out that the Cobras were so new in country that there was a prohibition on them landing anywhere except at their main operating bases. So these guys who rescued me they didn't tell anybody that they had done this. And so the two-star sends out the word, who are the guys who rescued the Air Force puke? Nothing. So finally, he has to send out a message that says, no harm, no foul. I want to know who it was. You know, step forward. Eventually, the two guys step forward. And uh, the kid who was the gunner, his grandmother, lived in a town six miles away from where I lived up. And the pilot made it through his tour, and he and I communicated you know, through life and after I retired. That's where your bias for the Army went away, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, the needle moved a little bit. <laughs>
0: So I'm going to jump ahead one more time. 1994, you become the first Air Force Academy graduate to advance to Air Force Chief of Staff. And during your tenure, you introduced a simplified code of conduct for airmen, which remains in use today. It's called the Air Force Core Values, and the code demands integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. Talk about the code. How did it impact the Air Force as a whole?
2: A little bit on the history of it at the time the air force had a set of core values there were seven of them and i asked some people i said tell me what the core values of the air force nobody could tell me and i'm a very simple guy and i can't keep too many thoughts in my head at one time and three's about the max so what i did is i i sent a message out to all the MAGCOMs and the direct reporting agencies to include the air force academy and i said send me a recommendation on what the core values the air force ought to be." and the air force academy sent in those three They had been, in fact, the core values of the Air Force Academy. This was ideal to me. They hit everything that I thought was important for our airmen to know and understand. And there were only three of them, so they were easily remembered. Everybody said, well, you forgot some things. You should have had honor and you should have had duty and all that. I said, no, the essence of this is we have to have integrity. We can't lie to one another and we can't lie to the public. So integrity is very, very important. What we do is lethal. And so we have to do it to the best of our ability. Otherwise, people get hurt, uh, things break. We ought to always be striving for excellence in whatever our field is that contributes to this. And then in the end, uh, we're military professionals. But in essence, service comes before self. That's got to be your outlook. And so that was kind of how I explained it, why I liked them, put them into effect. And over the years, people have tried to change them. Folks have come to me and said, what do you think about this or what do you think about that? And I've generally said, the Air Force changes so many things so much of the time. Look at the Marine Corps. Christ, they wear the same uniform that they invented back in the 1800s. And they got the same motto and this kind of stuff. The Air Force needs some kind of longevity. That's kind of how the core values came about. And I hope that nobody changes them. There's no no need to change
1: it. It survived the test of time for... 30 years now, and I hope it does, too, for perpetuity, and there's no doubt about that. Well, Chief, you know, we're coming to the end here, and uh, I want to ask an inspirational question. Here at WINGS, uh, we have several pathways. We've got a pilot pathway, a drone pathway, an aircraft mechanic pathway. We're building an air traffic control pathway, you know, where the next generation can be exploring options in aviation and space and possibly start their first steps towards an aerospace career. Maybe even creating new firsts, like you did as chief of staff. As someone with such a wide-spanning aviation career, what advice do you have for people starting an aerospace journey?
2: Here's what I believe you ought to do. If you're going to be rated, you need to understand the rated ops business. If uh, you're going to be in logistics, you need to understand the logistics business. And the nature of warfare is changing, and while all those things have been important, uh, you know, other things are becoming important. And so if you're an air or space graduate of the Air Force Academy, the first thing that you ought to do is you learn your core expertise. So for an aviator, you go to pilot training, and then out of that, you select a weapon system. And whether it's fighters or combat command, you ought to spend the first tour immersing yourself in learning the business. And that's probably a four or a five-year deal. Now, during that, you may go off to something like squadron officer school or something like that. But after four or five years, maybe you'll get a staff job. And the staff job will probably, that first one, will be related to that core expertise. And so you go off and do that. And by then, it's probably time to go to some intermediate service school or something like that, where you're going to get exposed to things that you haven't seen, but that's okay. But as soon as you go to that, you need to get back into your core area. Because now you're no longer just a line jock or a line analyst or whatever. Now you're supervising people and that you get back to it. and you do that for the next four or five years. And then at that point they may need your core expertise on the air staff, they may need it on a major command staff or whatever, you go do that. But you only do it for a couple of years. And then for those who have passed the test of time, you're gonna to get to come back in a senior position in your core area and you'll have the opportunity when you get there of knowing what the hell you're supposed to do. That allowed me to broaden myself, allowed me to know my people better and all those kinds of things.
0: What didn't come up in any of this conversation we've had, I'll wrap up with this. Maybe one of your shortest assignments from 74 to 75, you were actually in the hangar that John's sitting in right now, right? Hangar one out at Lowry.
2: Here's how that unfolds. I called MPC, I'd been back on leave and this guy you can hear him rustling paper and all this crap. He said, "Ah, oh, I got a really great assignment for you. You're gonna go to 4800 North York Street, Denver, Colorado. You're gonna go to the Air Reserve Personnel Center." I said, "Look, I want to talk to your boss. I want to talk to your boss's boss. You know, this is a joke. I don't." So they put this Lieutenant Colonel on the line. I'm bleeding all over him. He said, "Well, Major, I'm going there." <laughs> <laughs> he says, There's this new thing happening. It's called Total Force Management. And we want active-duty people, understand the and reserve, and so you're going to go there. And he said, I'll tell you this. You come work for me, do a good job. If you want to leave after a year, I'll make sure that you can leave. But you've got to come work for me. So that's how I ended up at 4800 North York Street. And it turned out to be a marvelous assignment because the deputy commander calls me in and he says, Fogelman, you're not going to be here anymore. He says, but while you're here, I want you to go visit... Guard and Reserve units on their UTA weekends. I want you to learn what it takes to be a Guardsman or a Reservist. So I ended up flying T-Birds back down at Peterson, and I met every guy who would become commanders in later years, and that's why I was always such a Guard and Reserve proponent. I knew a lot of your stories. You uh, give me a few more, and we
1: all really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to delve a little bit more into your history.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you, General Ron Fogelman, for joining us. Wow, what an amazing journey to hear about and learn from. You know, there were so many interesting aspects of Ron's life in the Vietnam War that I hadn't considered. I was particularly interested about how he managed to be rescued by that helicopter and get strapped in the bomb bay. (laughs) What were your takeaways, John?
1: You know, General Fogerman graduated in the fifth class of the Air Force Academy. I graduated in the 15th. Of course, I was always younger than as a subordinate. But watching him go through his career, and especially telling the stories he told today, it really was a treat. I mean, we're talking about a down-to-earth fighter pilot that the average airman, NCO, officer, general officer's, truly admired and respected for so many different reasons. One to respect, one to admire, certainly one to listen to. So I think our audience has been given a real treat today. And my takeaway is one for the history
0: books. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great summary. I appreciate that. Well, folks, that's gonna do it for this episode. We sure hope you enjoyed episode 24 of the Behind the Wings podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access the show notes. Now, don't forget, we've got new episodes coming out every other Monday. Make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and subscribe. And while you're at it, be sure to leave a review. It's the best way to get our show out there, and we greatly appreciate hearing from you. All right, we'll see you next time, right here on Behind the Wings.